Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Father God, we love you this morning. Uh, Lord, pray now that you would uh, open our eyes to the things in this passage this morning. May you uh, press into us a sure and solid foundation, Father, that can only be found on Christ. Lord, calls us focus just for a few moments here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 2, let's uh, go ahead and look at it and read it all together here, and then we'll dive in. Um, Verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is our text for this morning. I don't know if you saw the news this week, but there was a a massive massacre of Christians in Nigeria. They're saying somewhere 40 to 50 people um, have perished. Another 40 to 50 people are currently in the hospital. And as I heard the news earlier this week of that, I thought about how uh, ever since the beginning of creation, in Genesis chapter 3, the world has been at odds with the Christian faith. Genesis 3.15 says this, it says, The Lord speaking to uh, Adam and Eve, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, in this promise of ultimate deliverance and salvation and and the healing of all things, God promised victory through the seed of the woman. However, Satan would be able to inflict severe damage on God's people. Genesis 4 immediately follows this up with Cain murdering his brother Abel. Later, God's people, Israel, would be under constant attack by Gentile nations. King Saul was attacked by the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Philistines, and many other nations. King David had to defend Israel against the attacks of some of the the same nations and others. In other words, Psalm 2, verse 2, our text this morning, rings loud and clear throughout all generation of God's people. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see, in time, Israel would become disheartened, discouraged. They would ask themselves the questions, will we ever find peace? But they took to heart when a new king was crowned. For on that occasion, they would hear this promise of Psalm chapter 2, that the Lord and his anointed king would be victorious in their battle with the kings of the earth. You see, this psalm would encourage the the nation of Israel to continue serving the Lord. Likewise, if we today ever become discouraged by the attacks around the world on the Christian church, Psalm 2 should likewise encourage us to continue to serve 
the Lord faithfully. First, let's, let's, let's dive in here. First, we see the, world's, the unbelieving world's disposition. Psalm 2 consists of four parts, each three verses. The first part describes how the kings of the earth rebel against the Lord and his anointing. Look at verse 1. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You see, the psalmist here is literally asking the question, why are they conspiring together? You see, the psalm is dealing with the enmity mentioned in Genesis 3.15, between the Gentile nations who do not worship the Lord and the Lord and his anointing. You see, there's this division. We, we dived into it last week, but in Psalm 1, there's just, there's just two ways to live, only two. You can be against the Lord or with the Lord. And here Psalm 2 picks it up. He, they pick up, like, why are they raging against the Lord? You see, when a new king was crowned in the ancient world, other nations thought this an opportune time to rebel against the untested king. For example, when Rehoboam succeeded Solomon after David, the ten northern tribes rebelled and selected Jeroboam as their king. See, Psalm 2 pictures the Gentile nations, the unbelieving world conspiring together and their peoples plotting rebellion, rebellion against the Lord and his Anointed. But listen, he says, why? Why do they bother? He says, all of their plotting is in vain. Why does the psalm, psalmist say this? You see, this question of why carries over into verse 2. He says, why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? You see, the kings of the earth set themselves means that the kings of the earth prepare themselves for battle against two. Against the Lord and his anointed. Why? This is a lost cause. To rebel against the Lord of the universe. And his anointed. This anointed refers to the Davidic king. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed to rule God's people on God's behalf. The king's anointing symbolized his consecration to and authorization for divine service. And a promise of divine empowerment for that service. Now the kings of the earth prepared themselves for battle against the Lord and against his anointed, the king of Israel. They think they have this advantage of numbers. They have all the nations against two, the Lord and his anointed. Listen, it's a lost cause. The disposition of the unbelieving world is a lost cause. Being overconfident, however, many kings and rulers cry out, look at verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These bonds and cords that the psalmist is referring to here literally is the leather throngs that keep the yoke on the ox in place. The kings of the earth now are not actually tied with bonds and cords, right? You get like this, the psalms are poetry, and so you get the nations and the kings and all the people of the world rebelling against God, saying they're going to burst apart these bonds and cords because they think that they are in some way, being held down by the Lord. These bonds and cords stand for being in submission, in subjection to the king. However, the kings of the earth refuse to be in subjection to the Lord and his anointed king. Instead, they cry out, let us burst their bonds asunder. Let us cast their cords from us. You can see the, the, the impetus behind these nations raging and what they're ultimately driving towards. See, the yoke of God's kingship is not merely rejected. It is insolently thrown off. 
The kings of the earth desire to be free, independent, autonomous. They do not want to be servants of God. Does that remind you of any culture today? You want to be free, independent, autonomous. This is the world's, the unbelieving world's disposition to the Lord and his anointed. Notice next the Lord's perspective. How will the Lord respond to this rebellion of the earth? How would you respond against this kind of insolent insurrection? You see, we're in for a surprise because in the second part, the scene shifts to heaven where God dwells. Look what it says he does. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This laughter, this Lord's laughter is a scoffing laughter. Note the contrast here between the kings of the earth and he who sits in the heavens. The Lord sits enthroned in the heavens. Like right now, Christ and God the Father are reigning supremely in the heavens. So who do the kings of the earth think they are to even contemplate this kind of rebellion against the king of the universe? Such arrogance. Such arrogance. Isaiah 40 puts matters into perspective for us. It says this, Even the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Listen, all the nations of the world paling. And he says it's like a drop in a bucket. And these nations are raging against the Lord. And the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. Patrick Miller observes perceptively about God's laughter here. He says, in a strange way, it is one of the most assuring sounds of the whole Psalter as it relativizes even the largest of human claims for ultimate control over the affairs of peoples and nations. The fiercest terror is made the object of laughter and derision, and thus is rendered impotent to frighten those who hear the laughter of God in the background. Notice next that this laughter turns to anger. Verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, We expect harsh words of rebuke and vengeance. That's what we expect. Perhaps the Lord will call out the heavenly armies to snuff out this insurrection. Perhaps the Lord himself will be the divine word, incinerating all who oppose him. But here comes another surprise in verse 6. Instead of a battle cry, notice what the Lord declares. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Will these simple words strike terror into the hearts of the kings of the earth? Because they should. You see, verse 6 begins with an emphatic, I, the Lord, as for me, I, the Lord, have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. hill. The Lord himself has installed the new Davidic king in Jerusalem. The king of the universe himself has given this king his authority. And power, and this should cause the nations to tremble. Notice next, we see the king's rule here in the third stanza. The scene shifts back to earth, this time to Zion, where the new Davidic kings were crowned. The new king begins to speak here in verse 7. 
He says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This, this decree of the Lord. This is a document the king received at his coronation ceremony. This document contained the words of the Lord anointing and appointing this new king and his responsibilities. The king recalls the words on the document. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This this today here speaks of the day of coronation. So on this day when this king is anointed, he speaks these words, you are my son. The Lord begot the king as his son. This Davidic king, therefore, rules on behalf of God himself. His authority is not limited, notice, to Israel alone, but extends to the ends of the earth. Consequently, the king quotes the Lord in verse 8, saying, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of me, the king of the universe. You see, when the Davidic king asks Almighty God, then God promises, I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. The Davidic's king, the Davidic king's kingdom will not only endure the uprising, but will even be extended to the ends of the earth. This kingdom of David will become coextensive with the Lord's kingdom which is worldwide. This is why the Lord promises anointed worldwide dominion. But notice, the Lord further says to his anointed king in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Notice this contrast between the strong rod of iron and the fragility of a potter's vessel. This was no contest. In ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh would have had the names of his enemies written on the potter's vessels, and then he would literally smash the vessels. After it was broken into numerous potsherds, the vessel could never be put together again. Breaking the potter's vessel here symbolizes Pharaoh's victory over his enemies, so Psalm 2 is alluding to this practice. It means that the Davidic king will smash the opposition and be victorious over the kings of the earth. This is the third section. Notice the last section. The narrator's encouragement here. Stanza 4 speaks directly to these rebellious kings. The psalmist now warns the kings of the earth to serve the Lord and his anointed king. Because the king of the universe himself had installed this king in Zion and commissioned him to rule to the ends of the earth, the psalmist begins with a, Now, therefore... Verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This serving the Lord means to to worship the Lord, to submit to his kingship. It means to come under the king's rule and obey him as a slave surrenders to his master. The psalmist urges the the kings of the earth to serve the Lord with fear, with trembling, That is, with reverence and with all. Notice verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, in the ancient world, the people would come to the king, and they would kiss the feet of the king as a sign of their homage and submission to the king. 
So the psalmist here urges the kings of the earth, kiss the son, or he will be angry and you perish in the way. When the Lord is angry at the kings of the earth, they will surely perish. And so the kings are pressed to submit to this Lord. Notice as a final encouragement to submit. The psalm ends with the beatitude. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all. Not just the kings now, notice. Not just the kings of the earth, but all who hear these words and take heed. Happy and blessed are all who take refuge in him. When we hear this word refuge, we should think of a shelter. When people are threatened by bombs, they take refuge in a, in a bomb shelter. When there's a tornado warning, as there was earlier this week, we seek refuge in some kind of shelter. When we are threatened by the powers of this world, we also need a shelter, Christians. Psalm 2 encourages us where to find that shelter. It says, find that refuge in God. This means to depend on God, to trust God, to entrust your life and future to God. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord, the King of the universe. So now, what does this psalm have then for us today? You see, when Israel first heard this psalm, they heard the message that the Lord in his battle with the kings of the earth would gain worldwide victory through this Davidic king. This message encouraged them to keep going, to keep serving the Lord. Even as pagan nations attacked him, they were assured that the Lord would gain worldwide victory through this new king. Notice the promise here in verse 8. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So now think with me for a moment at the height of Israel's worldwide power. The height of the kingdom of David never reached to the ends of the earth. David's rule stretched from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. And that was the highlight, the the pinnacle of David's rule. And from that height, it declined gradually. In the year 586 B.C., the Babylonian forces actually came in and conquered Israel and carried the people into exile. And then there were no more Davidic kings. Israel began to understand this psalm as referring to some future anointed king because they believed the words of the psalm to be true, that God would, in fact, establish a king who would have this kind of rule. They looked forward to this anointed king, this Messiah who would rule the world. In fact, after the exile, when all these psalms were being collected uh, and put together into the Psalter, the editors placed this psalm immediately after Psalm 1 to introduce all the following psalms. You'll notice that the book of Psalms is broken into to five different, di- distinct different books, categories of books, meant to reflect the law of Moses also in five books. But these two psalms were placed at the beginning on purpose, for a reason. You'll notice that most of the psalms have a subscript in your scriptures. If you look like above verse 1, there's usually something like a psalm of David or or a psalm of Absalom. You'll have these psalms where they're they're given an introduction, and yet with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, there is no superscription. This is on purpose. You see, the message with this placement of Psalm 2 was this. Look, look 
and all the rest of the Psalms. You should be looking as you're reading for this coming Messiah King who would rule to the ends of the earth. Psalm 1. What, what, do you guys remember what Psalm 1 did? What was it doing? What, was it, what did it encourage its readers to do? Meditate day and night in the law of the Lord. And so Psalm 1 is pointing people back to the law of Moses, back to all the prophets. Is saying, listen, reflect on these things, meditate on these things. And then Psalm 2 is, as you continue reading, look for this one. Look for this coming king. Look for this Messiah who will rule to the ends of the earth. The New Testament then quotes or alludes to Psalm 2 more than any other psalm. Some 18 times. It does this for a reason. To persuade people that Jesus Christ is indeed the long-awaited, long-expected Messiah King of Psalm chapter 2. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Matthew, for one, made sure that we would know that Jesus was born of David's line. Matthew begins an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. The son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Mark begins his narrative about Jesus as follows. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like him, like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. See, this voice from heaven, quotes the decree the Lord gave to the new king in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. He said to him, to me, you are my son. Mark chapter 9, we were here just a, a month or two ago, says this, says after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is the, the Mount of Transfiguration experience in Mark chapter 9. Here, Moses represents all of the law, and Elijah represents all of the prophets, and Jesus himself supersedes all of them. You see, the voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him, submit to him, obey him. This is the son of Psalm 2, spoke about, the anointed king through whom the Lord would gain worldwide victory over the nations, but first Jesus would have to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. After his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus now works through his followers to gain worldwide victory for the Lord. Then Jesus ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling the nations. As Paul writes, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also 
in the ages to come. And you see here, Paul is referring to these two ages. This age and a future age to come. Already, King Jesus rules the nations. Don't forget that. Right now, Jesus rules the nations. So next time you're asked to stand up and tell what day it is, maybe you should say something like that. Today is June the 12th, 2022, in the rule of King Jesus. And yet, this reigning Jesus is not yet visible to all. The world's disposition is not one of joyful submission to the Lord and His anointed, is it? You see, we're still living in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? But it will become obvious at the end of the age when Jesus comes again. You see, in Revelation 19, John alludes to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9 and 11. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a picture of Christ coming on the final day to judge the nations, and then he will reign forever and ever. Thus it is that the kingship of Christ calls all other kingships into question, calls all other rulers into question, and places them under his lordship. In every sphere of life, Christ is the one who has ultimate rule over you and I. His kingship sets us free from the fear of all other kings and rulers and leaders. You see, this anointed of God alone claims and exercises this kind of lordship, this kind of reigning. Psalm 2, therefore, encourages us today, you and I, to continue the battle for the kingdom of God against the evil powers of the world. We should not be surprised that Christians around the world still suffer persecution. You and I should not be surprised that we may suffer persecution. You see, Paul wrote to Timothy, indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus also predicted persecutions for his followers, and yet he called them blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, they are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also said, in the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. So the meaning of Psalm chapter 2 for ancient Israel was to keep going under persecution. God will eventually reign. And the meaning for us under Christ is that right now Christ is reigning. Therefore, keep going. Therefore, take courage. Therefore, find your shelter in Him. For in the end, the Lord, the King of the universe, will gain worldwide victory through this Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider for a moment that right now, over all the rulers of the world, all nations, all cities, all states, all 
monarchs, all republics, all leadership, you stand above them all. Lord, it is easy to get distracted in the moment, to be fearful of others, to be fearful of even our own government. But Father, we pray, Lord, that we would see through all worldly leaders, and we would see you sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning from on high. Lord, this is the 2022nd year of your reign as Jesus incarnate. Father, Lord, let us remember that. Let us embrace that. May we walk boldly in that and because of that so that we can take courage when hard things come. We can take courage and knowing that you are still on the throne. Lord, this is one of the main themes of all the Psalms. May we see that this summer. In Christ's name, amen.